Golfers will pinch a bunch of blades of grass and throw them up in the air. And it'll tell you exactly which way the wind is blowing and how hard the wind is blowing in whatever directions. And then you can make your adjustments for the shot. No real balls will be used here this morning for safety. Now that works for golf. But that doesn't work for the Christian life. I can't imagine Jesus, while doing his ministry on earth, tossing up blades of grass to see which way the shifting winds of culture and popular, popular opinion are, are blowing and changing so that he can fit his message and change his message according to popular opinion. No, Jesus did not change his message based on what was hot or popular at the time or what attracted the biggest crowds. He didn't wait for government approval, and he didn't ask and take a survey of what the people wanted to hear the most. He didn't do that. He didn't do that. And neither should we. Now, Jesus spoke truth plainly, clearly, directly. His words were confident, captivating, convicting, both timeless and timely. As we conclude our journey through what's been called the most famous sermon of all time, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we've been in it all fall together, and we have arrived at the final passage of it. And it's been a great journey, and it's been... Uh, we've heard directly from Jesus in so many ways. And it's, as it concludes today, we're going to see that Jesus saved some of his most passionate words for his conclusion. I want to encourage you, if you uh, didn't get a bulletin, raise your hand and take a bulletin. It's got the sermon notes in there, if that'll help you follow along. In the first service, we had a power outage, so you really needed that bulletin. Uh, the sermon notes to help follow along. But go ahead. We have them printed, so raise your hand if, uh, if that would help you follow along. Thanks, Chris. What you'll see on, on those sermon notes or on the screen today is that there are four points in this message. And listen to this. I want to tell you this right up front. The four points of today's message, what they are essentially, are Jesus' application for the whole sermon. We call them the next steps. That's our wording here. These are Jesus' four next steps for the whole sermon, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. He concludes with these four things today. He demands action because burying our heads in the sand and sitting idly by or sitting on the fence, that won't do for Jesus, for us. So he demands action and he presents us with four pairs of our biggest decisions today. Decisions between two gates, two trees, two destinies, and two foundations on which to build our lives. Now where your sermon notes, if you have those in front of you, say next steps, then just draw arrows or an arrow up to the four main points. Because this sermon is Jesus' final application for the whole Sermon on the Mount where we've been and it stands alone as well. If this is your first time here with us, welcome. The first of these biggest decisions in our lives is this. Enter the narrow gate. Verses 13 and 14. Picture two gates. One with a broad and appealing road and a beautiful gate with lots of people. And one a narrow road that's less assuming with fewer people. And hear Jesus' words. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. 
and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. The narrow gate is the only road to the kingdom of heaven. It is the gospel of Jesus. It is the road through Jesus alone. And it is both glory glory and majesty, yet also self-denial. And here's the tricky thing. And all the people of the world, as Jesus will expound today in the rest of the text, the tricky thing is that both gates are assumed by people to enter into the kingdom of God. But they don't. The narrow gate is by faith alone through Christ alone, the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father but through him. The wide gate includes all other religions, approaches to good works and self-righteousness and all the ear-tickling, feel-good religious ideas and false gospels. Listen, everyone. Satan has convinced masses of people in history and in the world today and all around us today to ignore God's word in exchange for our own preferences. That's what we're going to talk about today. The attractiveness of our own preferences. The wide gate that looks so beautiful and appealing and draws us all the time, but it leads to destruction. Hear Jesus' words. Someone left me a large print of this picture on my desk a few months ago. I don't know who it was, but I put it up on my wall in my office as a constant reminder of the urgency of the message of the gospel of Jesus And Jesus' mission to proclaim his gospel, his life-saving gospel to every person, every nation, and every people group. Difficult is the way Jesus continually emphasized in his words in all four gospels and in writings about him. There was the emphasis that following Jesus is really difficult. It is. It is dying to our self-centeredness, to our flesh, its wants, to become alive in him, which we learn is much better We learn salvation is a free gift, but it is not easy. It demands repentance and submission to Jesus as our Lord. And so this is Jesus' first next step as he concludes the Sermon on the Mount. Enter the true way, which is not the big, fancy, appealing gate that leads to destruction. Now, that is quite the judgment, isn't it, from Jesus? Now, if you were here last Sunday... Or if you can just scan up to the first half of chapter 7, Jesus taught us at great length to make judgments correctly, judge correctly, never be judgmental and judge hypocritically, judgmentally, self-righteously. But he also says we better not cowardly avoid making necessary judgments. And such is the case with Jesus' first application here, enter the narrow gate You don't really want what your flesh wants, the broad gate. Stay away from it. Enter the narrow gate through the true gospel. And he continues with these sound, important judgments in point two. Now, as we're applying his words, who and what do we follow in this life? Pay attention to these words. Follow the good trees and fruit. Who and what do we follow in this life that he's given us? Pay attention to these words, verses 15 through 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Beware. 
You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Again, we're not to be judgmental. However, pointing out heresy is not judgmental. It is identifying the obvious that false teaching conflicts with Jesus. It conflicts with the Word of God. The two observations from this text that we just read. One, there are false prophets. They're out there all over the place, and they deceive many. How? Did you catch this? By disguising themselves as sheep in the flock of God or as true shepherds. They disguise themselves. Now, we have little problem calling out blatant error. I mean, people that are so opposed to God and to God's word entirely. We don't have any problem calling those out and drawing a line. But Jesus puts a finer point to it here. He says, beware of the individuals dressed in the uniform of my sheep, hiding who they really are. Beware. The other observation is that it is challenging for us to identify them. It's often very hard for us to recognize them. Why is that? Why is this such a challenge? Well, one is often because of our biblical illiteracy. If we don't know God's word, then it's impossible to know who is and who isn't a false prophet. Well, you might say they they use Bible verses. They must be true. No. It's not true. The worst kind of deception is mixed with a lot of truth. False teachers use narrow gate language to convince followers that they are on the road to life when they're not. So know the word. Know the word. Surround yourself with people who know the word and are teaching you the word. Another reason it's hard to identify them is our own syncretism. Now, that's an important word. It's, it's growing in popularity this year. Syncretism. Here's all that is. It's, it happens to everybody around the world. It's a mixing of different faiths and cultural values. And it happens in every Christian's life. We know a little bit about the word and we have our convictions, but then we mix other cultural values or maybe systems from a previous religion or other religions' impacts that have had on our lives. And we have this mix of conflicting faith and ideas. Our culture that we live in right now is predominantly secularist and humanist. Secularism is the belief, the religion that there is no God, or if there is, he's not relevant in all, these other, in all the areas of my life. And then humanism goes right into that. That is, has been around since Satan deceived Eve with it in the garden, where we get to elevate ourselves, the self, the human, as the highest good as God. It's all about ourselves, really. Secularist, humanist, those are the religious positions of our culture. They're taught in our schools and our media. And can't we just bring those into our Christian faith and bring them into the church? No. On the inside, these are ravenous wolves with the rest of them. And Jesus says, beware. He doesn't say just all get along and accept everything. Jesus says, we'll know them by their bad fruit. This is how we can recognize wolves in sheep's clothing. Now, this raises an important question. 
Is bad fruit that Jesus refers to here uh, bad doctrine or is it bad living? How will we know them? Because of the bad doctrine or because of their bad living? Because a lot of false teachers' living appears wonderful. So which one is it? The answer is yes. Both. Let's see how we can identify both. How to be a fruit inspector of both bad doctrine and bad living. First, bad doctrine. The Apostle Paul gives some instruction in 1 Timothy 6, and he starts off this section with these words, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, and then he goes on at great length to characterize, to paint a picture of people who would teach different doctrine, but essentially he's saying, don't listen to him or her. There is a lot of bad doctrine in the world People speak things as though they are from God, but they're not found in God's word, and they're not God's values. He says, beware of bad doctrine. One helpful concept that's been guiding our elders this year is theological triage. Now, if you're in the medical industry, you know what triage is already. Uh, Maybe some of you others do too. It's simply taking a set of needs or truths, and prioritizing them. These are the most important. These are the most urgent. In theological terms, in doctrine, we put, thing, we put doctrinal categories into uh, tiers ranging from the essentials of the Christian faith. I mean, these are what it takes to be a Christian. These are the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. But then there are other secondary or multiple levels of peripheral doctrines. Now, this is important for all Christ followers to do this. And so let me just show you. The first-ranked doctrines are essential to the gospel, to the Christian faith. You cannot be a true Christian without these. This would be the deity of Christ, that he was both fully God and fully man, or else he couldn't be the Savior for all humans who turned to him. The deity of Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ— That's a core essential, the virgin birth of Christ, salvation through faith alone in Christ alone. We will divide fellowship with people who disagree with those. They cannot be our closest inner circle of fellowship. That would be unequally yoked. So we will divide. Now we'll still treat them as lost unbelievers who we love and who need the true gospel. But those are the first tier essentials of the Christian faith. Outside of that, there's second-ranked doctrines that are important for the health and practices of a church, but that we don't have to break fellowship over. And these can be like our views of the end times or our views on how much water to use in baptism. So we don't call people who disagree with us on things like that heretics and say that they're not believers in God. Now, we need to be cautious, and we do need to separate at the level of a denomination or a local church in a healthy way but while loving each other in God's big church family, if we have the core essentials in common, we have eternity in common. We have Jesus in common and being saved and given a new nature in common. This is important. A classic and sound way of saying this has been around for a long time is this. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. That's helpful. God says, If there is bad doctrine, beware of that. Don't be influenced by them anymore. Well, what about bad living? How can we be a fruit inspector of of bad living and know who might be a false teacher or people that we need to to avoid or, or be on guard against? 
Well, for bad living, simply go back and reread Matthew chapters 5, 6, and the first half of chapter 7, because it's all about good living, following Christ, what he expects and demands, and what will bring us the abundant life. Go back and look at those. That is the fruit for which we are to look in people's lives. Now, eventually, because bad doctrine ultimately does not restrain the flesh from bad living, bad living, bad fruit will come out. It will be exposed. And just in these last several years, media everywhere, there's story after story after story of this very thing happening, bad fruit coming out. So when you see stories about sexual abuse in the church, substance abuse, anger and control abuse, cover-ups, Lies, gluttony, self-glorification, cultish behaviors. These are the bad behaviors that are the bad fruit. They're the signs of false teachers. Jesus is saying, beware of that. And we must distance ourselves from their influence or the use of their materials. Even if we've been blessed by them in the past, have discernment and move on from them. Again, Jesus' next step here is to be looking for bad doctrine and bad fruit. Now, the next helpful question, as we consider these words in verses 15 through 20, is what were the false teachings in Jesus' day and in the New Testament day, that first century church, the first church? Were they the same doctrinal errors as there are today? That's a good question. It's a fascinating question to to think about, to research. Let me just give you the short answer, yes. They're the same. They just have a different cultural spin to fit the cultures that we live in, but they've been around since the beginning. So what were the false teachers of the first century? Well, we see obviously Greek and Roman paganism was all over the place. That was the predominant view, and paganism is still alive and well in the world today, all over the place, including here. Judaism was itself the call to go back to salvation by keeping the law, not by grace, not by Jesus. Then there was Gnosticism. That was That held that Jesus was one of many created beings who showed us the way to salvation through improving ourselves. A lot of religions, cults, faiths do that kind of very thing. That self-help, self-righteousness mentality. There was docetism. That Jesus gave up his divine nature to be a man like we are. And we'll see next that these are all still very much around and very popular even today. Jesus said these words in Matthew. And then almost every New Testament writer after Jesus said these words included them in their writings to the church. They expound on Jesus' words. Why? Because false doctrine and false gospels and false teachers were in the church right from the very beginning. And they've never left. They're here today, alive and well. And Jesus is saying, beware. And they should be righteously hated because they slickly lead people away from eternal life and salvation through the narrow gate, through Jesus Christ alone himself. And so the New Testament writers, hear the words of of some of these writers. I I could go on and on. Here's just a few examples. To the Galatians, Paul said, There are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? 
And Peter to the churches in Asia Minor in 2 Peter 2 said this, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. The Apostle John to the churches in 1 John 4 says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, even if they quote scripture and sound good. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Almost every New Testament book, after Jesus spoke these words, repeat and expound on them to the church, because false teachers are everywhere. So, let's examine several types of false teachers we must identify today. I have just five here. If you have your notes, you see five. There are others. These five are representative. They give us a good grasp on the kinds of false teachers that are out today that Jesus says, beware. Now, remember, again, we're not focusing on the wacko stuff that's outside of the church that's so clearly wrong. We're talking about the wolves in sheep's clothing that use narrow-gate language, that are ravenous wolves hiding as Jesus' flock in the church. Satan's tactics are very clever, insidious, and effective, but they're predictable as well, and we can spot them, and we must always remain vigilant. Let's look at these five basic categories of them. First is the tickler. Sounds like a Batman episode. The tickler. This one's big. The tickler is the false teacher who is a man-pleaser for his own gain. Paul called him an ear tickler. That's where this name is from. 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth. Oh, how big that is today in the world, in our, our culture especially. What does the ear tickler value the most? Popularity and the praise of men from the world. And to get it, he preaches, teaches, and sings primarily the parts of the Bible that feel good. Little of sin, nothing of repentance, much of heaven, nothing of righteous judgment in hell, mostly whatever elevates the self. I camp out on that, and it sounds good. The tickler has always been around. 1 Timothy 6.5 calls them Corrupted in their minds and deprived of the truth, who suppose, listen, that godliness is a way of making a profit. I put this one on here first because of this massive, it is massive influence in our self-centered culture. It feels so good and gains such a big audience. The health and wealth prosperity gospel, or word of faith teachers, are under the banner of the new apostolic reformation. What are these? I'll begin with this definition of the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel teaches that Jesus is a means to health, wealth, and prosperity, as opposed to a Savior who reconciles sinners to God. Also known as the Word of Faith movement, the prosperity gospel is one of the fastest-growing movements. Of course it is. We can easily see why the prosperity gospel would be appealing. After all, Jesus is mentioned frequently, Scripture is quoted, and you can have your best life now. Just add faith. What's not to like? Now, some word of faith teachers, well-known, even go as far as denying the deity of Christ. And this is an age-old deception from the very beginning. It's been battled over the 2,000 years of Christian history. And this is where I really get fired up when you deny the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
such evil, slick deception. Why? To gratify and glorify ourselves and to build an audience in the name of Jesus. There's a definition of that. Word of faith teaching is that Jesus, and now this gets complicated, but you see where it, the end to which it goes. The word of faith teaching is that Jesus Christ gave up his divinity and became a man, just like us, died spiritually, took Satan's nature upon himself, went to hell, was born again. Jesus had to be born again. It's a direct teaching. But why? Here it is. Here's the end. And rose from the dead with God's nature. After this, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to replicate that incarnation in believers so that we could become little gods. And that is the little gods heresy. So that we have the ability to manipulate the faith force and become healthy and prosperous in all areas of life. It's a distortion of the true gospel of Jesus for their own gain. And I'll tell you, as I've researched this and I've listened to lots of teachers out there who teach these things, here I am, I'm a pastor listening to them for the purpose of discernment, and I still get drawn in by my flesh to their words. Beware. And you might be surprised how many Christian leaders on Christian television, Christian bookstore shelves, Christian radio teach these things. It's a, it's a trap, and only God, the real Jesus, the real truth of God's word is ultimately satisfying. I want you to know as your pastor that the elders and church staff here and leadership has spent an enormous amount of time and effort researching these areas and are committed to guarding the flock against them to the best of our ability. I want you to to pray for us, to pray for each other and and join in in this being aware. And we're not perfect, and there's a lot of confusion, and there's a lot of second and third level collaborations and associations and et cetera. So it's tricky, and it's a constant thing. As one of our elders, Doug Buller, said, sometimes spiritual warfare is in our face. Maybe more times it is hidden. And that's true. So we need discernment, and we need grace as we go. To attain, ultimately, the maturity and the unity that Christ shed his blood for, according to Ephesians 2. That we would be mature in Christ and unified in him. Well, that is the tickler. The rest won't take so long. The tickler. The second is the legalist. This one is the most massive deception of all of them. Because, again, all religions, all distortions of the real gospel have this at heart. Legalism. That I have to earn salvation, my way to God, my way to nirvana, my way to whatever, on my own. What does God plainly say about working our way into God's favor, into salvation? I, just read the Bible. It's never in there. And it's, the entire Bible is opposed to that thinking. Here's maybe the clearest statement, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. What is it that brings us salvation? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this Not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Then never separate verse 10 from 8 and 9 like every memory verse pack does. Verse 10 goes with 8 and 9. It makes sense of it all. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus once we're saved for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
this is what Satan does with everything. He turns everything upside down and backwards from God's design. Every system says we work, we work, we earn somehow some performance to some external legal code or our own value, somehow earning our way to God by good works. And Jesus says that's backwards. It's through my good works, my finished work of my life, death, burial, and resurrection. Grace comes from believing. I mean, salvation comes from believing in that and receiving Jesus as our Lord. Then we do the works that God prepared us for, shaped us for, is calling us to out of our gratitude and commitment to following Christ. That's God's plan. That's the message. of the, That's the gospel of the Bible. I heard it said this week, the problem with works-based religion is that the works never work. And they just trap people in this identity that's broken and this performance-based system that is empty, terribly frustrating and depressing. So why? Why is this so pervasive that all religions and in our own hearts we would try to earn our way to heaven, works-based salvation? Why is that so popular and predominant? Here's why. One of humans' basic desires is to be in control of my own destiny. It's a desire, it's a basic desire of being a human. And salvation by works appeals to mankind's pride and desire to be in control. Even if it makes us miserable, at least I'm in control. But it's a false gospel to think that we are saved because we are a good person. That won't get us there. And therefore, true Christians who have been saved and rescued from sin and eternal damnation should be loving enough and bold enough to lead people away from false gospels, to proclaim Jesus, faith in him alone. It's the best news in the world. And Jesus will save everyone who calls on him in repentance and faith. Now the next three, quickly. Number three is the prophet, something else we have to beware of in the church. The prophet has always been around. The prophet claims to speak fresh revelation outside of Scripture. The Apostle John takes this on head on. And Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, I want to read this, identifies the concern here. Long ago, the book of Hebrews begins with these words, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also through created the world. See, in Old Testament times, God spoke before the word of God was completed through prophets. And they heard directly from God, and they were infallible and authoritative as words from God would be. But, and even in the Old Testament, it was a death sentence if your prophecies didn't come true because you were a false prophet, generated by Satan, not by God. So Christ came, and the word of God was completed, his word. A prophetic, gifted person now is one who proclaims the word of God and applies it relevantly to our world that we live in now. So beware. When you hear words like, God told me directly, God revealed this to me clearly, this is directly from God. Watch out for these words. Better, and sometimes we say those things too, better is God illumined my understanding of how Scripture speaks to this situation. 
Stay away from the, from the influence of people who claim they hear directly from God. Number four to beware is the abuser. You know, the church is an appealing environment for the abuser. We're a bunch of trusting people. And this is sad. Over the course of Christian history, the abuser has infiltrated the church, and we have to all stand together and be aware. The abuser uses his position of leadership to take advantage of other people, usually to feed his lust for sex or power. He claims he is tending souls, but his true interest is ravishing bodies. Tragically, Christian history is filled with the infiltration of these ravenous wolves into the church in sheep's clothing. They're good at what they do. They keep getting exposed today, and we've seen so many. It's heartbreaking. Hell is a hot judgment for them if they don't repent. Survivors of these false teachers need our utmost prayer, love, and care. Amen? That's our part. Beware. Pray. Love. Care. And finally, the divider. The divider uses false doctrine to disrupt or destroy a church. He gleefully divides brother from brother, sister from sister, Why? For the personal satisfaction, the thrill of causing the division and and destruction. The divider is devoid of the Holy Spirit, whose fruit is love and holding believers together in the bond of peace, Ephesians 4. He's generating factions, not unity. Some of his approaches are sometimes he'll make a minor doctrine into the mark of Christian maturity and use it as a hammer to bludgeon people. And that's divisive, that divides people. Or he may slyly introduce unbiblical doctrines into the environment. Or he may undermine the ordained leadership insidiously. All for the perverse satisfaction that comes from that, that power trip. Romans 16, the book of Romans, Paul's masterful book of Romans, he ends with this exact warning. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out. For those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught, avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Will we beware of those as well? Brothers and sisters, our Lord Jesus told us so far in the application to his great Sermon on the Mount, judge... Take action, enter the narrow gate through the true gospel, then with all our lives and energies, follow good teachers who teach good doctrine. And then we bring, he brings a step, next step, number three. Now it's on us not to be a false follower. False teachers and false followers alike, please hear these words. Jesus is speaking to you. Verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You workers of lawlessness. 
One of the most frightening verses in the Bible. Here we see the danger of only saying a confession like, yeah, I believe in God, I'm Christian, or I said a prayer when I was a kid, or I said a prayer of repentance and belief, rather than praying a prayer of repentance and belief. Churches are filled with these, and naturally so. Our mission is to bring everybody in from the world who has varying understandings of Scripture, of the, of the true gospel. That's fine. We raise kids. If you're a Christian parent or have been a Christian parent in the past, you, you share this tension of, man, this, this is a great fear. I do not want my child to say they believe in Jesus just to please me. Amen? Have you felt that? That's right. But our calling is to disciple them every day anyway and pray that the Spirit makes true faith in their hearts. The churches are filled with these, and so because of that, I ask you today right now to search your own heart. Will Jesus say this to you when you stand before him at the judgment? Are you just saying the right things? Are you just acting like a believer, acting like a a follower of Jesus? It can all be faked. And here's why we fake it. It's attractive to fake it because you're included. And doing even mighty works, you're applauded. It's just a warning. Don't be a false follower. Just because you're in the church, the famous evangelist Billy Sunday, who grew up in Winona Lake, Indiana, by the way, uh, you can take a tour of his childhood home. Strong evangelist, world known. He was quoted, he was given the credit for this great quote. Not sure if it was really him or not, but he, he's given the credit for it. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to a garage makes you an automobile. Salvation comes from repentance and faith. And then you join the true church. Now, everybody else is welcome here to consider these truths as you're on your own faith journey. I pray that you'll trust him today. Don't walk away from today without making sure. Again, enter the narrow gate. That's his gospel. Follow good teaching and decide your eternal destination was number three. And finally, number four, Jesus' next step to his Sermon on the Mount. Commit to be wise and not a fool. Jesus wants us to be wise, not fools. Here's what he means, verses 24 through 27. These are Jesus' last words of the Sermon on the Mount, by the way. And they're great instructions for the course of our lives. Here he sends this out on what to build our lives upon. Here are these words, the final next step from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rains fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, And it fell, and great was the fall of it. When the rains come and the storms of loss, of tragedy, of illness, of false teaching, come persecution, and they beat against your house, and it's making your life hard, the floodwaters rise against the house of your life, does your life crumble, or does it stand? Jesus says it's those who listen to his words, but don't just listen to them, but do them, apply them every day as a rule of life 
follow Christ in every way. That's building your house on the rock, the solid rock of Jesus and his word. If we don't apply them and don't do them, we're building our lives on the sand, and when time gets tough, you're in great danger. Let's build houses of our lives that withstand absolutely everything. Because we can, because Jesus is the rock. That's being wise and not a fool. Here's a picture from Ken Ham. Ken Ham from Answers in Genesis has been using this graphic for a long time. And it shows, I like the, I like the image of the difference between a life and how to process moral issues in our world today and the decisions that we make all based on these foundations. This is his quote. The moral issues before us, gay marriage, racism, abortion, gender issues, they're all symptoms of the one problem. People building their thinking on the wrong foundation of man's word, the shifting sands that were different than they are today than 20 years ago, and they'll be different in 20 years from now. The solution has always been for people to believe the truth of God's word, the rock, and the saving gospel, and build their lives on that, on God's word. Out of God's word comes a worldview that stands absolutely because it stands on God's absolute authority. Hear Jesus' words. And that concludes Jesus' words that he spoke. He's given these four next steps today. And we will be wise and fruitful to follow them. The text, though, chapter 7, isn't quite finished. There's an epilogue. If you have your Bibles open, you can look at those last two verses, verses 28 and 29. With these four next steps today, Jesus sends us all out into the world, building our lives on him, his true gospel, knowing and following him with great discernment and great success. But this epilogue that follows Jesus' words is is itself remarkable as well. Verse 28 and 29, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Does Jesus have authority? Jesus has all authority. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, you now go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, And teaching them to observe. This is the rest of our lives. This is discipleship. This is growth, maturing in Christ, maturing as a family. To observe, that's like observing Thanksgiving. We're all in. We're all surrounded, enjoying the festivities. That's the sense of that word, observe. All that I've commanded you, Jesus says. We're all in. This is our lives following Jesus. And it's glorious because he is glorious. This is the God who became a man to provide reconciliation to God for all humans through his life, death, resurrection, and lordship. Let's follow him together. Community grace, let's pray and give this to God. Jesus, thank you for these words. Father, thank you for sending your son, Jesus, and elevating him to all authority, to the king of kings status, to our kingship of our lives, of our church, of our decisions of our ethics, of our values, and blessing us, not with the flashy stuff that seems good, but is fleeting and doesn't last and leaves us empty and broken and damaged and hurt and confused. But I pray that everybody would have the real gospel today in a growing understanding that you will grow us in our worship to the King, a maturing as family, 
that spills out into engaging the world for you. We respond with our worship now. In Jesus' name, amen.